Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 53 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and this weekend I went to a fancy dress party as Slash from Guns N' Roses, which quite possibly mitigated all of my feminism and also my head was hot. It's a lot of hair. And a hat. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and last week I had a box fizz at the Canadian Embassy at 10am. Maybe that's what they mean by the world's greatest feminist. What's Sadiq Khan offering then to compete? <laughs> I don't know. Jen and I went to see a preview of Come From Away. It was great, wasn't it? Yeah, it was lovely. And I'm Jen Offord, and on Friday I bought myself flowers for the first time. Aw. I wasn't even trying to get in my own pants either. <laughs> Surely you can't bought... just get in your own pants. I can. You've never bought flowers for your own house before? No. What did you buy? I bought some yellow roses because they matched the throw on my sofa. Nice. And they mean friendship. So. Oh, do they? That's well, nice. now I'm friends with myself, so <laughs> that's, that's, good. that's lovely. Friends with yourself and access to your own pants. It's all oh, going splendidly. I'm like the best girlfriend ever. <laughs> Later on, comedian Samantha Baines chats ear spiders and the joy of hearing aids. Artistic director of the Gate Theatre in Dublin, Selena Cartmel, talks about her first year in the job, which included quite a baptism of fire. And we chat to Liz Foley and Beth Coates about their book, What Would Boudicca Do?, and I also chat to sports journalist Carrie Dunn about the Women's Champions League. And I do Disney's Atlantis. No, me neither. But first, bullying, benefits and Brexit jobs. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we hide our opinions about as well as Kanye West does his iPhone code. Four zeros. If you didn't know. You know who was in the White House? I do. During that time, uh, he was filmed doing something on his phone and he had to go to his unlock screen and his password is 0000, which I think might be his nickname for the rest of the Kardashians. (laughs) (laughs) Let's start with some good news, like the goddamn mavericks we are. Last week, a historic bill was launched in Parliament that could remove the devolution issue scuppering any progress on abortion in Northern Ireland being decriminalised. Finally! Just a reminder that currently in Northern Ireland, abortion is a crime punishable by life in prison. 28 women a week travel to England for care, others can't. What actually needs to happen for the good of women across the UK, because, and this one's for you Karen Bradley, Northern Ireland is actually part of the UK, is for abortion to come under health care rather than criminal law, which is exactly what Diana Johnson and a coalition of MPs from five political parties have made clear in the first private member's bill seeking to repeal sections 58 and 59 of the UK-wide 1861 Offences Against the Person Act. Sections 58 and 59 make abortion at any gestation a crime, carrying a possible sentence of life imprisonment. If successful, the bill would also decriminalise abortion in England and Wales, a move which won parliamentary support last March and is due to be debated in Parliament on October the 23rd. Now, Northern Ireland has had almost 22 months without Stormont, therefore effectively without government. It is absolutely time for Westminster to step in. But what's that coming over the hill? Is it a monster? Is it a monster? Well, yeah, pretty much. The DUP is absolutely anti-abortion and Teabag has shown all the backbone of a jelly baby left in the sun when it comes to facing up to Arlene Foster and her cronies. We can all help though. You can visit nowforni.co.uk forward slash take hyphen action and there's a pre-filled email that just needs your postcode and details to nag your MP to do the right thing come October the 23rd. I filled it in this morning. There was a battle for the title of most public irony this week with Melania Trump and Princess Eugenie both having a punt. 
The oddly fashioned first lady, and I mean that however you choose to interpret the word oddly fashioned, claimed in an interview that she was one of the most bullied people in the world. Which makes no sense however you choose to interpret the words most, bullied or indeed the world. The statement attracted the kind of sympathy you have for a cat that's screaming her head off while sitting next to a bowl of food. No mentioning names. Peggy. No clues as to whether Melania believes the statement is true or merely wants us to, but it's deliciously ironic given that she pledged to make bullying her big issue. You'd hope that by now she'd have met someone, anyone, who gave her a bit of perspective. I genuinely can't think of any other campaigners whose message starts with, no one's had it as bad as me. <laughs> Is she just going to take all of the funds that she gets yeah. to buy new coats with slogans on? Well, actually, funnily enough, going back to the analogy of Peggy sitting next to her food bowl, the issue was I didn't have any cat food and I gave her tuna, right? She didn't want tuna. She wanted me to go out in the rain and buy cat food. Understandable. And that's kind of what I think this is with Melania Trump. It's not that people are bullying her. It's that she actually wants people to actively go out of their way to praise her, which is a different thing altogether. Mm -hmm. Because let's face it, Melania Trump actually gets a pretty easy ride, as first ladies go. Hillary Clinton, Betty Ford, Eleanor Roosevelt were all regularly and volubly criticised by the public and the press. Nancy Reagan and Barbara Bush were the butt of a thousand jokes. And don't even get me started on what repugnant things were said all the goddamn time about Michelle Obama by the sort of men Melania's husband still hangs around with. Yeah, and she has all the tuna she can possibly eat. <laughs> so we, we can assume that's the most ironic thing that happened all week. Well, maybe not, because Princess Eugenie, remember her? Yeah, although I only found out how to say her name this week. I always thought it was Eugenie, and it turns out it's like Eugenie or something nuts like that. Eugenie, I thought. Yeah. I don't know. Eugenie! <laughs> well, she had a stab at the crown. No, not that one. When she last week married Mr. Somebody from Money, probably, of somewhere <laughs> nice, I'd imagine, at, I don't know, an expensive London landmark, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong or you cared enough to find out some actual facts yourself. Eyebrows were raised during the ceremony when the bride's sister did a reading about smiles, lifted entirely without context from The Great Gatsby. The smile, described over a number of paragraphs, is that of Jay Gatsby, a grifter, a conman, a fraud. You can find the quote for yourself if you Google smile quotes, <laughs> which I think was how they got into that situation. In the first place. That's my Monday night sorted. Alexa, can you find me a wedding speech, please? <laughs> and some great news for the mental health lobby at long last. Sort of. Prime Minister Theresa May announced on World Mental Health Day last week that she had appointed Health Minister Jackie Doyle-Price to the brand spanking new role of Minicide... For, minicide? Minicide. Oh. God, that was a that's, Freudian slip. That's happening a lot at the moment. Uh, the, sorry, the role of a Minister for Suicide Prevention. Sounds like she's taking it seriously, right? Well, maybe have a cursory glance at Doyle Price's voting record before you make too much of it. It's that age-old quandary, isn't it? Where do you put ministers that are arsebags? To be fair to the Tories, it's not a problem specific to their party, although, you know, proportionately speaking. Yeah, Tony Blair once found himself in a similar position back in the day when he made Opus Dei member Ruth Kelly the minister with departmental responsibility for equalities. Her voting record on that was 
pretty interesting reading too. Anyway, Doyle Price has consistently voted to slash benefits for the most vulnerable, including voting for the bedroom tax, against paying higher benefits to those unable to work for long periods of time due to illness or disability, and against raising welfare benefits at least in line with prices. For the non-economically savvy among us, that's um, cutting benefits. Oh yeah, and of course, lest we forget, Debt, austerity and unemployment were cited in 2015 research led by academics from Bristol, Manchester and Oxford universities as significant factors in then rising numbers of young men who had taken their own lives since 2008. Still, it's the end of austerity now, right, teabag? So presumably you're going to be making it rain for some of those ministers tasked with keeping the sinking NHS afloat and providing some actual services for all the people you fucked over with your Victorian fiscal policies. Now, I tweeted about this the other week in an earnest and self-important Twitter thread on World Mental Health Day. As you're both aware, I had a bit of a wobbly time this summer and I decided to uh, go and chat to someone who might be able to help me out with that. And I discovered that in my area, there are no talking therapies available on the NHS whatsoever. And I would imagine if it's like that where I am, it's probably like that in a lot of places. So I would suggest that if Teabag, who has talked quite extensively actually about mental health and how we need to do stuff about it, I would suggest that probably the more pressing thing to do would be to provide some actual services. You make it sound so easy, Jen. I know, yeah. So logical. Talking about things that aren't great for your mental health, I'm going to wang on about Arlene foster tell oh, a bit more. Soz, guys. As the Democratic Unionist Party look adamant that Theresa May's Chequers backstop Brexit deal gets jettisoned. Even though the DUP campaigned against the Good Friday Agreement back in 1998, the Brexit risk to the Irish border has got them fired up, with Foster pretty much stating she's willing to die in a ditch, at least politically speaking, rather than allow any border of any kind crossing the Irish Sea to divide Northern Ireland from the rest of the UK. Karen Bradley, love, if you're listening, just to reiterate, Northern Ireland is actually part of the UK. I don't know who Karen Bradley is. She's Northern Ireland secretary. Is she? Yeah. Okay. I mean, it seemed a good idea at the time, but Theresa May might well be ruining her decision to form an alliance with the DUP. What am I like? It never seemed like a good idea. That billion's not looking quite the savvy investment anymore, is it, Teabag? It does very much look like Arlene's not only got you in a headlock, but has put a thumb up your arse for good measure. Because with all the internal revolt in the Tory party, May needs a DUP vote more than ever. Imagine being in that position. Don't necessarily mean with Arlene Foster's thumb up your arse, but imagine relying on those fucking lunatics. So talking about Brexit, um, here's something for you. Anyone in the market for a job at the moment might be interested to hear that a few new posts have popped up in the civil service. Oh, that's exciting. Tell me more, Hannah. Yes, indeed. You've got till October the 22nd to get your application in for the newly created positions of resilience advisors, (laughs) colon, EU exit readiness and response support to local preparedness. If you're thinking, that sounds a bit like the guys who come round to tell you to hide under your table because the Russians were lobbing bombs at us in things like the war game, then the job description's not going to put your mind at rest. Boasting, as it does, subheads such as, be ready, respond and recover. The role, which does essentially sound like it's the character who butts up against the hero in Brexit, the movie, oh God, were this a movie will apparently include, and I quote, 
enabling resilient localities which can prepare for, respond to and recover from civil emergencies of all types. No, but really, anyone shitting their pants yet? Can they get my pants to recover from this civil emergency? (laughs) The roles will apparently be on a nine-month secondment opportunity with the possibility of extension. (laughs) Really? More than nine months, you think? I mean, I'm guessing being the officer in charge of shit shoveling after Brexit is probably as secure as a job gets in a post-Brexit Britain. The ideal applicant, if you're interested, will be, quote, excellent at strategic thinking and understanding the wider context and use sound judgment and a range of evidence and information and robust processes. Now, I'm thinking if they can find someone that could do that, fuck this job, put them in charge of Brexit. Absolutely. Just a note, if you're thinking of applying, please be aware, and I quote, that the assessor won't be reading your answers sequentially, because of course they won't. Anybody fancy a guess at how much this job is going to pay? Do you just get a free coat of armour and a shield and a pack of cheap ibuprofen from Tesco? Uh, No, you get just shy of £46,000 plus London waiting. Anybody fancy a guess about how many of these white knights there are going to be? I think with the way Brexit's looking, that we need in the region of about 2012. Well, you would think so, given that they, they need to understand local communities. There's three. There's three, going oh, to be three. three. That yeah. would have been my A whole three. Uh, well, I don't know about you, but I'm reassured. Just a quick reminder that the March for the People's Vote takes place on Saturday. That's this Saturday in central London. We will be there. And in the meanwhile, if anybody spots any other job adverts regarding Brexit... Officer in charge of reforming Dad's army. Don't panic! <laughs> Minister for distributing pillows to scream into. We're doomed. Nigel Farage, body double. <laughs> I would be, of course, pleased to hear from you. Shrieking harpies, that's in inverted commas, FYI, were getting all hot and bothered last week in response to some sage advice from the Metropolitan Police. Following a spate of sex attacks in northwest London in recent months, more details were released last week about the methods used by the attacker to access his victims, which apparently was to approach lone women, try to chat to them, then ask them for a kiss or a hug, then assault them. That's quite a quick escalation, isn't it? Having as yet failed to apprehend the criminal, who has committed ten attacks since February, the police instead issued advice to women on how to stay safe in the area. Speaking on behalf of the Met, Detective Constable Laura Avery said, I would appeal to women in the local area to take care when they're walking, especially if they're alone. Always stick to well-lit streets. If possible, let someone know when you are coming home and the route you are taking and always be alert in your surroundings. So don't use earphones or handheld devices. Many, including Jessica Eaton, who we mentioned on the podcast last week, were quick to point out the fundamental flaw in this advice. It's not headphones or poorly lit streets doing the raping. And in issuing this advice, the onus is put on women not to get attacked rather than on the perpetrators of sexual violence not to commit crimes against women. Anyone want a good news story? Yes, please. please. It does come with a caveat of starting out pretty shit. Sorry. Okay. Did the curse of Strictly strike again? Or is that just made up tosh as a sort of defence of people cheating on their partners? Whatever. When comedian and Strictly contestant Sean Walsh enjoyed a very public snog with his dancing partner Katya Jones, both of whom have, or I should say had, partners, it was caught by tabloid cameras and set Twitter on fire. Oh, big sigh. 
yeah, basically, it's mostly no one's beeswax. What happens in someone else's relationship? Although the people congratulating them and saying, ah, shit happens, no one's infallible, can get in a bin. I promise you good news, and I am getting there. Sean's now ex-girlfriend, the frankly marvellous Rebecca Humphreys, put out an incredible statement, outlining that she wasn't a victim, Sean's been a bit of a gaslighting cunt for ages, and she's taken the cat. Cue an explosion of love for her, and also for her drawing attention to coercive control in relationships. Bex, we bloody love you. Well done, and thank you. Agreed. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we question whether a woman with that hip-waist-bus ratio would be able to even stand up without toppling over, let alone save the earth on a weekly basis, sonic screwdriver notwithstanding. That's right, we're talking about Mattel's limited edition doll of Jodie Whittaker as the 13th Doctor Who. Mattel, in case you were unaware, is the brand behind that bastion of attainable figures for young girls (laughs) to aspire to, Barbie. That said, Barbie's latest incarnation as Jodie Whittaker as Doctor Who, which is basically what we're looking at here, isn't really aimed at kids. With its £55 price point and gold label tag, this doll is more for the adult Barbie collector, which is, upsettingly, yes, a thing. So yeah, it turns out having a female Doctor didn't make the world end or galaxies implode. Nope, it just took about 12 hours before she was time-travelled back to the 1970s to be rendered objectified in plastic. Sigh and... Now, is this a different thing or is it the same thing? Someone posted something on Twitter the other week. There was like a... There was a Doctor Who... I think this was like official merch, maybe. A Doctor Who figure. And so, like, the previous ones have been called action figures, but this one was called doll. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't think it's the same thing. Well, then they're sexists. <laughs> yeah, they're everywhere, Jen. <laughs> they walk among us. Yeah. <laughs> Women, if you could take care to avoid sexists, <laughs> the onus is on you. Hello. Sorry to interrupt your listening pleasure. I just wanted to remind you that if you actually want to see us talking in the flesh, you can do it by coming to one of our In Conversation shows. We've got three shows left in 2018, all of them held at the Leicester Square Theatre. The first one is on October the 28th, when our guests are Stacey Solomon, June Sarpong and Lisa Riley. On November the 20th, we'll be allowing some men to do the talking, when our guests will be Richard Herring, Colin Jackson and David Morrissey. And finally, in December, our lineup will be Felicity Ward, Lolly Adafopi and Laura Bates. And that is on December the 16th. You can find out more by going to the Leicester Square Theatre website or to Sarah Millican's website, www.sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue. Thanks. Hello. We are joined by Liz Foley and Beth Coates, authors of What Would Boudicca Do? Everyday Problems Solved by History's Most Remarkable Women. Hello. 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 Oh, <laughs> hang on. There's, there's a Hannah as well. From the title, it's probably fairly self-explanatory what this book is about, but can you just tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, sure. So basically, it was kind of born out of the back of the Trump inauguration, wasn't it? Yeah, and Where the protests. Saw, and the protests that we saw, the sort of women's marches. And we were really struck by those signs 
and the amazing way that women were kind of reclaiming the nasty women situation. And then we thought about the sort of classic nasty women through history who we thought we could kind of reshape them as well. And then we wanted to take it a step further and think, actually, is there a way in a slightly kind of agony aunt way that they can definitely teach us practical, actual things about the way that the modern dilemmas that face women today. They're inspiring, but also then there's each of them is linked up with a particular modern day problem in the hope that their kind of biography helps solve that problem. Yeah, exactly. I've actually got a few of the women in the book that I have picked out and I'd like to know (laughs) what we can learn from these specific women. So first up, so let's just say, for example, while we're on a sort of Trump vibe, (laughs) uh, you speak out about your experience of sexual assault and you get mocked by the leader of the free world. Mm. What would Boudicca do? (laughs) See, yeah, what Boudicca would do would be set fire to everything. (laughs) So we can't say She would incinerate them. Yeah, she would. (laughs) She did set fire to... So she was... Her daughters were raped and she had her land stolen from her by the Romans and... Also, she was publicly flogged, so she was, you know, purposefully humiliated in Mm. in a horrific way. And instead of sort of accepting that as a nice lady should, she burned Colchester, St Albans and London completely to the ground Mm -hmm. with kind of hideous massacres. We've all done it. (laughs) There's that great fact, isn't there, that you could apparently, if you dig down, there is like a layer of sediment that's red and that is actually Boudicca. That's That's her burning. So you can sort of see it in the soil. Yeah. Yeah. which So she left her mark. I mean, I've been to Colchester Castle (laughs) many times. I actually have. I am from that neck of the wood. Yeah, they do show you the foundations of the Temple of Claudius, which she did in fact burn she's like my Essex girl yeah (laughs) but she's somebody that so obviously you can't emulate her no we don't (laughs) say in the book that you should necessarily turn to arson and disemboweling of people as a response to these kind of things but we did think that quite a lot of the commentary around say the me too movement has been about how is it a bit shrieky is it a bit over you know it's a bit too much and Mm. you look at someone like Boudicca and it's actually quite helpful to go okay something really awful should have a really powerful punchy response yeah and yeah without the burning <laughs> yeah, yeah. but she was not worried about making enemies about speaking out about you know doing what she thought was the appropriate thing in that circumstance mm. and everyone was very shocked by that like Tacitus who's the main source for it he's brilliant on how like bizarre it is for a woman to be leading an army and for like all the shrieky women on the battlefield and all the mm. noise they make and how alarming <laughs> that is because we talk about Cleopatra in the book as well and the Romans obviously were very freaked out by Cleopatra and so women in charge was something that they were very uneasy about mm. but yeah she was she wouldn't be silenced and also the other interesting thing is history tried to get rid of her yeah. she, her story wasn't really popular for a long time but then it was Queen Elizabeth the first yeah who decided to repurpose her and bring her as her sort of personal brand. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that famous speech where Elizabeth I comes that when the when her troops are about to fight the Spanish Armada, she basically dressed like Boudicca. She kind of came out on this white horse. She put a white gown on, sort of armor yeah. to make her red hair stand out. Yeah. And she was, yeah, she was channeling Boudicca basically. Yeah. And then I think Victoria did the same did thing. The same thing. Yeah. That was a nice moment for us that the, these women's reputations were sort of taken on by other strong women yeah. and then perpetuated, which seemed pleasing. Yeah. I've got another modern day Mm -hmm. issue. You get dicked over by some douchebag you've met on Tinder. What would Dorothy (laughs) Parker do? Oh, I love Dorothy Parker. We talk about her and handling jerks, and essentially our takeaway advice on her is to try and turn your experiences into amazing copy, which (laughs) is what she did. She had a series of really disastrous relationships, but she was able to 
I don't know, just turn them into the best lines. She got pregnant by one of her lovers and had an abortion, and she wrote that line, serves me right for putting all my eggs in one bastard, which I just <laughs> love. <Yeah. laughs> we just kept thinking about how great she would have been if, yeah, it, if she'd she been around been for Twitter. That would have been incredible. Yeah, she's good. So she's somebody we think about, OK, yeah, they are there, but if you can turn it into something for your own advancement of your own career, then that is no bad thing. Yeah. Right, you've got bad Insta selfie game. <laughs> what would George Eliot do? <laughs> so we have George Eliot, and I think we felt slightly guilty about this because we take a very irreverent approach to George, who is, you know, a hero. We have her on the subject of not being hot because she was famously not particularly beautiful and that was commented on by people like Henry James who mm. wrote a long and elaborate kind of letter about how her, much her he didn't fancy her. Horse-faced blue, stock. blue stocking. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And he was not, you know, it's not like Henry James was, you know... Chris Hemsworth. But we talk about her and how actually, again, one of the things we loved when we were writing the book is that a lot of these people upended our expectations and we thought George Eliot, she's a really nice Victorian lady and actually mm. she had this really scandalous life mm. where she lived in sin with her like life partner because he was sort of irrevocably married to somebody else mm. and because of that her family sort of disowned her and she wasn't invited to any dinner parties because she was living in this terrible outside of you know what was socially accepted but because of that she wrote all of her amazing novels she mm. had plenty of spare time <laughs> and, uh, and she wrote all her amazing novels and she's left behind this incredible literary legacy and you know Middlemarch is regularly put on the top of like best novels yeah it's often at number one isn't it yeah. yeah and it's kind of like who cares whether she was hot or not mm. what henry james thought she looked like mm. she has this incredible thing that she's left behind she had this really amazing love affair she had this brilliant life she had this brilliant career so good work <laughs> blue stock yeah, exactly so some of the women in the book are a bit controversial for example you know you're not advocating that anyone goes and uh, like burns colchester to the ground although Actually, I'm not going to say that. (laughs) So Isabella Beaton plagiarising various Mm. people's recipes, Mary Mm. Stopes, Mm -hmm. basically a eugenicist, etc., etc. Was that intentional? It was, actually. We had Mary Stokes is really interesting because she's somebody that we talked a lot for a long time between ourselves. I mean, I, I really wanted her in because she's from Edinburgh, from my hometown. So that was my little <laughs> fight for her. But also because she genuinely, she freed women from this sort of reproductive shackles. But she was a pretty horrible human being. I mean, on the lighter side, she, she disowned her son for marrying a woman who wore glasses because yeah. she was so upset by the sort of eugenic side of that. But she was obviously racist. But we were really kind of keen that that we didn't want perfect women in there we wanted really complex women we wanted women who we didn't want to sugarcoat women yeah so we wanted to show all of their imperfections as well as the things they did to move the world along because nobody is a perfect no we've got like really bad mothers in our book we've got murderers we've got big boozers we've got yeah we, we we definitely didn't want it to feel like they you held those women up and also there was another point in which you know you don't bring up Winston Churchill's dodgy past you don't you know it's, it was that thing they of were women being be heroes yeah, yeah women being held to different well, that's standards really interesting because one of my absolute gripes recently is that somebody putting an opinion out on something you don't agree with now seems to be sufficient yeah. to actually just wipe wipe them from your yeah. your back catalogue yeah, and yeah. the fact that people are flawed 
is sometimes the reason that they manage to achieve the things yeah, that yeah. they achieve. And I, I find it really staggering that nowadays people have to be so squeaky clean yeah. on yeah. everything because public shaming. Yeah, yeah. That it's it's it staggers me. It's that, a really reactionary approach, yeah. isn't it? Churchill, there was that stuff. Well, you know, when the yeah. darkest hour came out, of people saying, "Do you know what his record yeah, in other yeah. places was?" Mm. And it's good that people are talking mm. about that now. Mm. But it mm. still doesn't undermine the fact that he did, he did amazing did. things. Yeah. We, we wouldn't be here having this conversation yeah, yeah. were it not. Yeah. Yeah. what he did yeah. well that was definitely our take particularly with somebody like Mary Stokes I mean, we, and you know our editor really questioned us putting yeah. her in even like the illustrator of the book who's this brilliant LA based illustrator she was she had a moment of like really saying "Do you, are you sure you, yeah. you want her in there so we had to fight for her but that was a really good conversation to have and a good fight to have yeah. in, in a sense and I think so long as you're not hiding it so the thing we didn't want to do is pretend that Coco Chanel hadn't had a little wee bit of collaboration going on when she was in under the Nazi occupation. Yeah. And we didn't want to hide those facts yeah. when writing about how all the amazing things yeah. these women did. Mm. How difficult was it to find all these women and then match them to the ideas that you had? Well, it was the thing that was difficult was was trimming it down to 50. I mean, it, we've, got, we've got this document on Liz's desktop. Spare Ladies. Yeah, which <laughs> is about 290 women who yeah. we really wanted to write about. Yeah. Once you start on this, it's just endless apparently women have been doing really good things for no. a long yeah. time oh, you. <laughs> we basically came up with the list of dilemmas though that we want yeah. or sort of modern problems and then very quickly in the research of the women you could see what the little moment was in their biographies or their lives that fitted that that mm. dilemma so there are people who we really wanted to put in but we couldn't immediately like Mary Queen of Scots I really wanted in yeah. there, but we couldn't immediately see Joan and of Arc's probably Mary a big Curie. There's yeah. lots of omissions who we feel bad about. Now it was it was a really fun thing to to kind of have the list of dilemmas and the women, but it wasn't straightforward. No, we didn't argue at any point. No, we didn't, it, did we? But like we did have people kind of go in and out of contention. Yeah, Mother Teresa we had in there. We at swapped one point. her for the pirate queen, yeah. for Gronje O'Malley. <laughs> and have you followed any of the advice of these women? Yes, actually. <laughs> I always now look in the mirror as if I'm Mae West. <laughs> yeah, she's great, isn't she? She's on, on body positivity. She's again somebody who totally upended our expectations. Yeah, because she was such a writer. She was yeah. like, I thought she was, you know, mainly this kind of, you know, amazing buxom come up and see me sometime lady. Mm-hmm. And actually the fact that she wrote all her own lines, she got yeah. sent to prison yeah. for freedom of speech. Yeah. Like all of those things about Mae, I didn't really know. So yeah, yeah she was extraordinary. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because you have like women that, Almost everyone in in there, you know, I would tell you know. our facts mm. yeah. about them, but quite often that's the only fact that they then mm. become yeah. known for. And I was doing some research on something a couple of years ago when I was going to the Titanic Museum mm. in Belfast, and I started reading about unsinkable Molly Brown, mm. and then I started reading, you know, a bit more about her actual life. I mm. mean, it's exciting mm. that she went down on the Titanic mm. and lived to tell the mm. tale, but fuck me, what she did after yeah, it yeah, yeah. is absolutely yeah. incredible. Yeah. What she did for women's rights. And for like mm, more people in yeah. America and yet she will always be known as yeah. unsinkable yeah, Molly Brown because yeah. it's got that little bit of like glamour so or whatever fits with a marketing story. plan or yeah. something Josephine Baker has a bit of that I think going yeah. on as well where she's always going to be famous for dancing in a sparkly banana skirt right? yeah. she's a civil rights activist yeah. she was a member of the resistance she won loads of medals of honour for her service to France mm. during the second world war like there's just loads of stuff mm. to her that isn't necessarily the first mm. thing you think of it's quite a light hearted approach to mm. exploring these different women 
But there is quite a sort of serious message about the sisterhood, in inverted commas. Somebody yeah. called it feminism by stealth, which yeah. we quite liked. Yeah. In this way that we were really it's keen not that to. Stealthy, no, it's not but that yeah. stealthy. Yeah. But, but we, <laughs> yeah. but we were really keen to make it really accessible, and we thought yeah. if, if we made it funny, then that kind of brings people to it in a way yeah. that they might feel like, oh, another book about feminism. One of the things, again, that kept coming up when we were researching the women was this idea of women helping other women and how often that was significant. So one of my favourites is Josephine Baker, and there's a great story about they wouldn't serve her in the stork club in Manhattan, and she walked Because she out. was black. Because she was black, yeah. and she walked out. And Grace Kelly happened to be there at the same time and got up and walked out as well in kind of support of her. Mm. And then from that point on, they became like amazing friends to the point that when Josephine went bankrupt... Grace, by then Princess Grace, gave her a spare house in Monaco to live in to look after her. But (laughs) that was really, you know, it was a significant friendship in their lives that started. And you talk about um, Althea Gibson, don't you? Yeah, Althea Gibson, who's the first black um, champion of Wimbledon. And she, again, just had all these moments in her life where like difficult moments for example she wasn't allowed to participate in the Lawn Tennis Association and this white champion Alice Marble kind of swooped in and wrote a letter to the the sort of best magazine at the time just saying come on guys what what are we if we can't face her in competition so there were just various difficult moments in her life where women and friends kind of swooped in and and changed them for Mm. her at pivotal moments and it was definitely one of the themes that female friendship seems to kind of carry yeah well obviously it does yeah Yeah. it's a great it's a good thing i um as anyone who listens to this regularly will know i am entirely obsessed with ellen roosevelt (laughs) she's not in there she's um, not we know but betty ford is and betty ford's such an interesting character and now i look at you know (laughs) <laughs> Melania Trump, you know, yeah. dressing like she's in Raiders of the Lost Ark, <laughs> making statements about Kavanaugh mm-hmm. and makes me so depressed. And mm-hmm. your instant go-to, I think when you go back, mm-hmm. you know, you think Michelle Obama, mm-hmm. you think Eleanor Roosevelt, and for me, you think Abigail Adams, who mm-hmm. were all extraordinary mm-hmm. women. Mm-hmm. Actually, Betty Ford doesn't always get a fair crack of the whip mm-hmm. in that list because a lot of what she did wasn't when she was the first lady. It was sort of after yeah. that yeah. she achieved that stuff. But mm-hmm. what was interesting to you about, about Betty Ford? So we talk about her in relation to her struggles with addiction. Yeah. But we also were interested in her because of the fact that she was quite controversial even when she was first AD. Because even little things then, like, I mean, it seems so extraordinary that the fact that she spoke openly about the fact that she and her husband shared a bedroom in the White House. They, she mm. talked about their sex life, didn't was she? was like mm. a crazy, yeah. like, incredibly controversial it, thing. Yeah. Said, wow, if only the White House only had that level of controversy, yeah. that would be amazing. <laughs> so relaxing. And that she kept, you know, she made various statements about, you know, not worrying about her daughter having sex before marriage or mm. smoking marijuana or various mm. things that were like a bit off where she, what she was supposed to be talking about and we mm. really liked that about Betty and the thing about her struggle with addiction is that she did again find help from people and actually I think her daughter was really instrumental in yeah. her actually getting help but then she didn't just go away and fix that problem for herself she then decided to speak openly about it for the benefit of others mm. and the same I think when she had breast cancer she spoke openly yeah. about it in a way that, that was, was again at the time really frank. shocking the breast cancer yeah. bit of it wasn't yeah. it as well yeah. and I think she got I mean she had a, what did they say they called her no lady instead of first lady mm. because the people who objected to her being so frank and outspoken and, and not conservative enough so who was your favorite of all of the women okay so for me i think it was the ones that i found most surprising are the ones that i still think about so isabella beaton actually for me is one of my favorites we write about her on imposter syndrome which i think also what the reason she i suffered from that quite badly so she's also one of my favorites in terms of i had this image of her as a sort of matronly lady running around the kind of country house 
with shouting at her servants dressed in crinolines. And actually, she was really young. She was 28 when she died. Wow. She was a journalist. She was an editor. She was a translator. And But the best fact about her is that she couldn't cook. She just could not cook. <laughs> she was married to a very canny publisher who had a magazine. And she started writing a column for that. And he saw that it was really popular, this column, even though the very first recipe, she missed out flour. She had to print an apology. It was yeah. a cake recipe. Yeah. She missed out flour. Yeah, exactly. And I just that just really appealed to me. You know, she'd been told by somebody that it took decades to acquire culinary expertise and she just didn't have time for it so she thought okay the copyright laws are really lax at this moment in time so she basically took her recipes from all around her but she did have one good invention Mm. that idea of a recipe where you have all the ingredients at the beginning that comes from her which is a nice a nice invention see I love Josephine Baker and Hedy Lamarr um, because they just have amazing Mm, stories and they're so glam and witty and clever but then the one I always kind of come back to is someone who's much quieter and people don't know about so much she was Caroline Hazlitt who was an, uh, an engineer and she's someone who's not very celebrated and she's not someone who went out there and did outrageous things and was really kind of noisy about stuff she kind of wandered around in a twin set and pearls on the boards of many engineering societies but we do her on um, giving up housework because she was really instrumental in the electrification of Britain after the war and her purpose in that was that she wanted to free women from housework mm. and from the relentless boiling the things, boiling the laundry and mangling stuff. And so that was her whole reason. She said she wanted to free up their time to do more other more interesting things like perhaps study engineering. Mm. So I think about her quite a lot because also she helped invent safety plugs so whenever my children are sticking their fingers in the safety <laughs> plugs I thank Caroline Hassel. Yeah. where can people I'm assuming all good bookshops all good yep. bookshops where yeah. can people get in touch with you guys if they want to so we're on Twitter and Instagram as well at at Foley Coates please do get in touch yeah excellent thank you so much thank guys you. thank you All right, it's Janet. Sorry to interrupt your listening experience. If you like what we do here at Standard Issue and you want to keep hearing some excellent content made by excellent women, yeah, us, we know, you can do so by visiting our Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash Standard Issue and chucking some dollar our way. Thanks very much. Hi, we've been joined in the studio by Samantha Baines, comedian. Hello. Hello. I didn't know whether you were going to introduce, because I'm a multi-hyphenate, as Emma Gannon would say. Okay. So I didn't know if you are going to go comedian, actress, broadcast, along oh, this. Chuck in some more hyphens, please. Comedian, actress, poet, broadcaster, writer. Wow. Woman. Woman. <laughs> Hearing aid wearer, feminist. Legend. <laughs> Dairy intolerant tea drinker. <laughs> All of those things. Good sleeper? Um, depends. Okay. I wouldn't go so far as to put that in within my It's not in the list yet. Okay. Sleeper. Lover. Sleeper. Cat. Yeah. Occasional yeah. sleeper. Lover of sleep. <laughs> yeah. And cats. And cats. Yeah. Amazing CV, mate. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Am I hired? <laughs> I don't know what I'm applying for. What you're applying for is, you've come here to talk to us, because amongst that list was hearing aid wearer. Yes. And I am an alleged hearing aid wearer, but I never put mine on. This is the worst. Yeah, I know. So the last time I saw Samantha, she was showing me her hearing aid, and it was way more exciting than my hearing aid. And I thought, this is a woman who knows about hearing aids. And then you told me you were writing two books about her. Yeah. So let's hear about those. Allegedly. Um, Well, I'm currently writing a children's book. So the main character is a little girl who has a hearing aid. So I guess it's not about hearing aids. Her hearing aid helps her translate alien languages. 
obviously. Wow, my hearing aid was way worse than that. Talk about burying the lead. <laughs> you speak to aliens? <laughs> yeah. Well, how many aliens do you know? You might not have yeah, that yet. That's so a good point. It might, might pick it up. But yeah, yeah, it might not be coming into play yet. So, yeah, children's book with a strong female lead who has a hearing aid and is super cool and kick-ass. And then an adult's book about a woman who discovers she has hearing loss and sort of hides it from everyone and doesn't know how to deal with it. But funny. With jokes. That, <laughs> that, that's interesting because there's two different issues there. The first is the issue of wearing a hearing aid as a child. Did you wear yours as a child? No, so I got my hearing aid last July. So I've had it for a year and a bit. Okay, so how conscious were you, or self-conscious were you, when you decided to go and get one? I didn't really decide to get one. I had no idea that I had hearing loss. I basically heard a noise in my ear that sounded like like wind moving and I'm a bit of a hypochondriac and I suffer from clinical anxiety so I thought I had a spider living in my ear genuinely thought <laughs> I mean, it's I the natural like, assumption isn't it like we've all seen those YouTube videos yeah we've all seen I'm a celebrity get me out of here an alien an alien like, spider living you know, in your ear yeah yeah I'd have thought exactly the same it is one step from to something just bursting out of your chest yeah 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 <laughs> no but you know you read those stories in those weird yeah. newspapers that are like oh I had an alien living in me for several years yeah stop reading it. those stories <laughs> gonna do your own heading because I'm a hypochondriac I'm gonna have to ask you a bit more about that wind yeah. noise was it intermittent or like all the time or so it was when I I was in a very loud environment mm-hmm. or a very loud noise happened like on the tube sometimes and then I would hear that uh-huh. so in my head I was like well that is clearly a spider being like whoa that's a loud Woken noise up. I'm, yeah I'm gonna scrabble around a bit or like digging for buried treasure no digging like a little nest in my ear <laughs> spiders the infamous diggers of the natural world <laughs> <laughs> well it's earwigs hello yeah it's not a spider though no sorry that's not what this is Similar. about <laughs> so I went to the doctor because I thought I had something living in my ear. And she had a look in my ear and she was like, no spider for you. Then she said that maybe I should go for a hearing test just to check that it wasn't anything more sinister. More sinister than a spider. Yeah. 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 That is pretty sinister. Yeah. Like, Her frame of reference is all over the place. <laughs> what would be more sinister than spider to live in your ear? Nothing. Yeah, I can't even think of an appropriate joke that we'd allow to go out on air, <laughs> to be honest. A tiny Donald Trump. Yeah. 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 Dressed Hopkins. as a spider. Just blowing in my ear. <laughs> Fucking Katie Hopkins in your ear. <laughs> oh. Yeah? That, Did I that's win? That's more sinister. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> and live streaming it on a social media network. Yeah, that's in your sinister. other ear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, they sent me for the hearing test and I thought they were going to test my ears and be like, you're fine, you've just got a weird noise, maybe you've got some fluid in your ear. And I went for the hearing test and I'd never been for one before. They put you in a box and not the sort of female comedians only talk about their vaginas box, <laughs> a real box. And then they play beeps in your ear and you just press a button when you hear the beep. And I came out of the box thinking... I've won. I'm quite competitive. <laughs> They're going to be like, oh my God, we've never had such high results. And I came out and they said, you have moderate hearing loss in one ear. You need a hearing aid. And I genuinely said, what? 
<laughs> but out of shock, not as in I didn't hear her. And yeah, it was a complete shock. I, I had no inclination that I would have any sort of hearing loss. So it goes mild, moderate, severe. So I had medium hearing loss or grande if I'm ordering a drink. <laughs> Because that's really confusing, isn't it? You're like grande, like that sounds big. <laughs> anyway, so they said I needed hearing aids. Yeah, complete shock. And then they sort of sent me off into the world and gave me a fitting for my uh, hearing aid fitting date, which was like a week later. And I cried. And th- this isn't the question you asked me, is it? But I'm just starting no, telling you the no, story. No, but it is interesting. So carry on. So uh, yeah, so I left the hearing test place and yeah, cried. It was in Stratford, and I was near Westfield. It's a good reason to cry. I know. And I I don't like crying in public, so I wanted to find somewhere quiet to have a proper... You know when you start crying, but you're holding in most of the cry until you get to a private place? It's more leaking, isn't it? It's just leaking, and you need a sob zone. You could pretend that you had sort of, oh, really bad hay fever, until you get to the sob zone. I like that zone. So the only sob zone I could find was the bike shed underneath Stratford, Westfield. Um, shopping centre, which is the place where everyone stores their bikes. So I went in there and just like had a proper cry. And like at one point, a woman came in and saw me and slowly backed away. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what she must have thought. Like I just got a really bad puncture on my bike. Um, <laughs> what I really cared about sustainable transport. I don't know. But yeah, so I was having a proper cry. I rung my mum. Now my mum does have a hearing aid in each ear, but she's never really made a thing out of it. And it's never really been. I don't know, I guess a big deal. So I rung my mum and she said, it's fine, I've got two. Uh, which is definitely a my mum way of <laughs> comforting me. I was like, that doesn't help. You're 60 and I'm 30. And yeah, I was totally shocked. And then I had to go back a week later for my hearing aid fitting, which is a strange thing. They shoot that foam in your ear? No, so I didn't. So the first hearing aid I got was on the NHS. So they didn't do an ear mould. They just gave me one of the ones that goes round the back of your ear. That's what mine looks like. But there are more modern ones. So basically the one they gave me is like 20 years out of date. That's the first one that they give you, which since I found out that technology has advanced. And obviously the NHS is a brilliant service. And for people who don't have the money to pay for maybe more up-to-date hearing aids, then it's great. But I I didn't know any of this at the time, so I was just going along with the process. I went, they gave me the one that goes behind your ear, but it has a little plastic bit that goes in your ear. And it goes in a really specific place in your ear and you have to get it right. And I know it sounds weird, but it's really difficult to put it in your ear because obviously you can't see your ear. And they fit it for you and then they say, now you put it in. And they basically watch you for like 10 minutes, fingering <laughs> your own ear, yeah. trying to get this hearing. Genuinely, the only thing I can liken it to is trying to put in a tampon for the first time. Do you time. know, I nearly said it sounds like putting in a tampon yeah, for the first because time. Because you're like, it's my body. I sort of know where stuff is. Yeah. But I still, how can I not make this work? And you know, when you look in a tampon box and it has the instructions, which you only ever use the first time, it says to put one leg on the seat, on the <laughs> toilet seat. So you're in a weird lunge. Yeah. Like yeah. in later life, have you ever put a tampon no, in like well. that? Only if I really needed to feel confident about what I was doing next. <laughs> but it's the weirdest instruction. And I remember trying to do it for the first time, my tampon, and my mum standing on the other side of the toilet door being like, how's it going? And me with like my leg up on the toilet, like, I don't know, if, I don't know where the things go. So it was kind of like that, but a woman was watching me going, no, 
no, you still not got it in. Like, it was a horrible experience. I went bright red. I was, like, sweating. I like, couldn't find my own ear hole. <laughs> anyway, we finally got it in. I sort of said to her, so normally you lose your hearing in both ears. I don't know if you have this as well. Do you have it the same? Both well, ears? I haven't got hearing loss. I've got hearing that wasn't there in the first place. Oh, but right. one ear is definitely better than the other ear. Yeah. Well, because normally you lose them... Um, both ears with hearing loss you lose the sound and the hearing at the same rate so you normally get two hearing aids at once but I only had it on one side quite um, markedly worse than the other so then they needed to do further investigation after giving me this hearing aid as to why that was so I hypochondriac as I mentioned earlier had obviously googled it and having a brain tumour was one of the reasons that you would have hearing loss on one side so I asked the woman in the hearing aid fitting if there was like any particular symptoms or like frequencies that you lose if you have a brain tumour on one side and she said yes the higher frequencies and I said what have I lost and she said the higher frequencies (laughs) and then she put a full stop on it and she didn't say anything else so, like, she didn't say, but the statistics of you having a, uh, a brain tumour like this or, like, anything comforting at all, she just said, yeah, you've got the symptoms that you've had if you need a hearing aid. I left with my hearing aid, which was an incredibly overwhelming experience. I don't know if it was for you when you first put in a hearing uh, aid. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I used to tell this joke on stage. I put my hearing aid on, and for about the first minute, two minutes, I was like, oh, my God. God, I can hear birds singing, I can hear children playing, this is amazing. And I stepped out of the hospital at the front door and an ambulance roared past me into the ambulance bay outside Casualty and it was singly the loudest thing I'd ever heard in my life and it was completely horrific, like to the degree that I was like almost crouching, holding my head, like where is it? I'd never heard anything like that. So yeah, I it was a real shock to the system. But I did find that I drove my flatmates mad for about the next week saying, what's that? And they were like, I don't know, what are you talking about? And I was like, that thing. And I would wander around the house seeking the thing out and it turned out it would be the fridge. And the fridge would have a buzz at some whatever temperature or or not temperature, frequency that I had never heard before. And they were like, yes, the fridge, it does that. I realised that you could hear the motorway from my house, which I'd never known before at that point. So, yeah, it makes you realise what you didn't hear. But I would say that a lot of that stuff that I didn't hear was stuff that I don't think I was missing out on hearing. (laughs) (laughs) Unnecessary. A lot of it was bad noise, I would say. But, yeah, I mean, I could hear hear more clearly, obviously. I guess that it depends as well what frequencies you've lost because some people, like, lose like the doorbell for example yeah so obviously when you've got a hearing aid in, that's going to be more useful yeah but yeah no for me it was totally overwhelming like i have a joke that i say on stage where i'm like i could hear the the birds singing in the trees mm. the cricket being played on the lawn the neighbors talking over the white picket fence and then i thought hang on why i'm on the set for midsummer murder <laughs> <laughs> um, but but it's true isn't it you can yeah. hear all these sounds you can hear before but i found it totally overwhelming like i went for a coffee with my friend afterwards and i like couldn't really talk to her because my brain was so filled with so many noises yeah. that were louder and i could hear where i couldn't hear before and apparently that's because your brain naturally as well kind of filters out background noise you have to learn to filter it out again and as a lazy bastard that was another thing I didn't really want to have to do was like you mean I actually have to make the effort to hear 
I was like, I just yeah. thought hearing would come, and now I can hear everything. And that's why when places like pubs, gigs, stuff like that, people say, why haven't you got your hearing aid in? And I'm like, that's just ridiculous. My ability to focus in on what you're saying won't be helped by having this thing that makes everybody's conversation much louder at the same time as well. Well, that's not true. I feel like my aim here is to convince you to put your hearing aid in. So that is the old-fashioned technology of hearing Well, that's aid. my shit hearing aid. Yeah, yeah, that make everything louder. Yeah, yeah. So the hearing aid I have now is a Phonak hearing aid, which I got... So I had the same experience as you. I put it in and it was kind of amazing and I could hear everything. And in that respect, it felt really relaxing because I didn't realise how long I'd had to make a real effort to Mm. hear and to lip read and things like that. So in some ways it was amazing. But in other ways it did, yeah, make everything louder. So some situations were much, much worse. So I stopped wearing mine. Also, my the inside of my ears are really tiny. So they didn't have a fitting small enough. So my hearing aid would actually hurt. Oh, like when you've had earbuds in all yeah. day. Yeah. So what I then did was looked at, um, because I have the money to not rinse the NHS of their resources, I thought I'd get a private hearing aid. So I got in contact with a company called Phonak and they then did a mould of my ear and I now have an in-ear hearing aid, which is very tiny. It looks like a small red chilli and it goes completely in my ear and you can't see it at all I actually wanted like a glittery sparkly hearing aid to like make a thing of it and because I think that's cool but loads of companies only do those for kids which is really sad but so you can't really see my hearing aid but what's brilliant about it is it's molded to my ear so it doesn't hurt and it filters out background noise does it now yeah so it has technology in it that in a crowded room will pick up the frequencies that i need to hear say you speaking in front of me and filter out the background noise and it also has technology in it which stops my because you remember the wavering noise i told you about that's actually tinnitus that's a form of tinnitus so before i'd only known that tinnitus was like a high-pitched beep Mm. Um, which turns out I also have, but I attributed to my grommets. But grommets are just a, a tube that's put in your ear, but I assumed it was some sort of digital thing that beeped. <laughs> so I've had beeping tinnitus since I was like 12. But the wavering noise is tinnitus as well. And there are actually like over 10 different noises that you can hear from tinnitus, which I found out when I got in touch with the um, British Tinnitus Association. So I'm learning all these knowledges from these amazing people. Um, and Action on Hearing Loss is a brilliant charity as well, if anyone suffers from hearing loss to help you have more resources and information about your hearing loss but yeah so my phone act hearing aid now is amazing because it filters out background noise it makes the things louder that i need louder it also for me stops my tinnitus because if any noise is too loud it controls that as well so but the problem is with hearing aids you need to wear them every day all day because if you don't your brain won't become accustomed to you wearing them so every time you put it in it'll be overwhelming all over again so there's no point in having a hearing aid that you just wear sometimes you have to wear it all the time otherwise it's not going to help you I am kind of convinced I have accepted I will have to wear one at some point because I will get a hearing loss and when you're working on a base rate of not very much Mm. you know it it it's going to become to the point where I am not, I mean, debilitated isn't the right word, but it starts to affect my life. Also, I think more people have hearing loss than they realise. It takes on average a person 10 years between seeing the signs of hearing loss and do something about oh, really? it. And one in six people in the UK have hearing loss, 11 million people. But so many people don't realise. So actually, 
this could be a really great way of saying, well, maybe get your hearing checked. But also, this is why subtitles are so useful and why it's so, especially on TV, and why it's so annoying when they're not right. But also, there's a big campaign going on at the moment to get subtitles in the cinema and get more showings of subtitled films. And I think, you know, we do it with foreign language films. Um, It doesn't distract from your watching of the film if you can hear everything properly and there should definitely be more subtitled films to make things more accessible and also online videos like so many now are subtitled which is great but you know any video content that people are putting out on socials and stuff should be subtitled too just to make it more accessible well it's things like sign language interpreters obviously we see lots of shows being interpreted but it's only really late at night so basically you have to be like a vampire if you have hearing loss or you communicate with sign language because you could only watch TV at night that is some of the funniest shit that a deadwood which uses the word cocksucker 40, 50 times an episode is one of the funniest things to watch. How signed. does that going down? I mean, this is great for a podcast, but... Well, exactly how you would imagine. Okay. Yeah. Some of it's brilliant. I did um, a gig for Action on Hearing Loss, which is the Hearing Loss charity, um, a comedy gig, and it was signed and it was also text to screen. So there was a woman typing up what we were saying. And I had so much fun with the sign language lady because I didn't know what loads of things were in sign language. And like fucking is literally holding your first finger and thumb in a circle and putting your other finger in it it's one of my favorite ways to tell my boyfriend i'm up for it (laughs) but that is actually british sign language for fucking like there's so many great things and vagina is making a diamond shape with your two thumbs and your two forefingers that's vagina and penis is genuinely just your first finger lifting it up from a downward position like getting a boner Wow. So good. I'm loving this. I Hannah, could... Hannah just lost her erection at me, which is weird. <laughs> I could actually talk sign language phrases, but I'm not sure it is going to work on the podcast. What else are you up to, Samantha? I have a new podcast. Oh. Best give that a plug. Yeah, it's called Periods, Amazing Women in History. And every episode I have two awesome women who are living on and they we talk about them and then they tell me about historical women that have inspired them and maybe been lost from history so it's all about celebrating the ladies that sounds cracking why can people watch that um listen to that listen yeah on itunes or acast acast is supporting it which is great terrific and what's your twitter for people to get in touch at samantha baines b-a-i-n-e-s and i'm on instagram as well Perfect. Thanks. She's on all the social media platforms. All of it. Got a website and everything. Wow, showing off now. <laughs> Too much. Thank you so much for coming in, Samantha. That's Thanks. been great. Hi, we're here in the Marker Hotel in Dublin with Selena Cartmel, artistic director of the Gate Theatre. Thank you for joining us. Great to be here. Now, Mickey and I went to the gate. We were gate virgins and we went last night. Popped our gate cherry. <laughs> we did. <laughs> we went to see Hamlet with Ruth Negger in it. It was absolutely terrific. A rightly deserved standing ovation. She, I accidentally touched her, but that, I mean, I promise it was accidental. <laughs> she actually looked a bit teary at the reaction mm. that she got mm. from the crowd. And it's uh, a sold out run, isn't it? Sold out run. Six weeks sold out. I'm assuming she's getting that reaction every night. Every night, every night. I think she is quite magnificent. She's also an incredibly humble artist, and you can really sense that in her performance. She's, in my opinion, in terms of the way that she is handling playing that role, it is so fresh and it makes it 
so alive and she's luminous on stage as well you know yeah. she's a chameleon how <laughs> exciting is it as the person who's in artistic control of a, a venue to put something like that on it's hugely exciting and I think everyone involved in that production from the creative side to all the actors to the crew to bring all those extraordinary artists together and create and support them and empower them to make that kind of work it is not only thrilling but it's very satisfying to feel when that is communicated to an audience and you have these kind of responses every single night it really makes you want to wake up in the morning I would imagine. We also really like the theatre, because not a bad seat in that theatre. Now, you've been in charge since June 2017. I've seen you describe it as your favourite theatre in the world. I think it has the really... It's, it's, it's a, not only a beautiful space, I think the relationship between artist and audience, actor and auditorium, I think is really unique. It's a found space. It's not a purpose-built theatre, so it has a lot of ghosts, which which I love. It was transformed into a theatre rather than it being built from the ground up. Oh, and what was it originally? Well, it's part of the Rotunda Complex, which is one of the largest European maternity hospitals, so right next to what used to be used as dining rooms. It's been there as a theatre for 90 years, originally established by Hilton Edwards and Michal McLeamore back in 1928. I believe originally, when they found it, it was a roller skating hall. And, and they um, got out their paint pots and they took down all the paper chains and created it and transformed it into the theatre that we know today. So it is a beautiful space. We've spoken to a lot of women this weekend for other things and we all said that we were going to see Hamlet and that we were coming to interview you. They were all very enthused about the gates, mm-hmm. about the amount of productions that are on, that are women-centric, mm-hmm. but either directed by a woman, mm-hmm. written by a woman. Now, I'm assuming that was a deliberate move on your part. That's a really interesting question. I Obviously, as, as a female director myself, as an artist, you're always very aware of how you can empower not only women, but men as well, in terms of, I believe, in gender equality and equity with that, is that how do you program a season of work that allows that to be at the forefront, but also allows different stories to be told through whatever prism or perspective that comes from so we just finished a 14 week run of Roddy Doyle's The Snapper which was directed by Rogine McBrin. I think it was a 50-50 female-male ratio on stage in terms of the cast as well. So I think think you're very aware of it. I don't think it's necessarily leading absolutely all my artistic choices in terms of what I programme. I am just very aware of how you need to balance that for audiences as well in terms of the stories you tell. So so when audiences come to the gate, they know that what they're seeing represents as much as possible all of their stories as much as the stories that I want to tell as well. Yeah. You began in June 2017. Mm-hmm. You didn't have so much of a honeymoon period as a baptism of fire mm-hmm. when you started mm-hmm. because as your tenure started, a lot of allegations came out about Michael Colgan, who mm-hmm. previously had, had been in charge of the gate. It was Island Theatre's Me Too moment mm-hmm. almost... I mean, that was obviously a tough start for you. Would you have had it any differently? I believe that when I took over the gate, obviously I had no idea that something like that was going to break. And I think at that particular time, it was such a zeitgeist. And as um, a woman who's leading a theatre organisation, when all that was happening, not just in Ireland, but around the world at the same time, 
I think it made everyone at the gate, both the staff and the artistic community and all our stakeholders, really wake up, actually, to what has been happening and what happened. And it was very challenging. It wasn't maybe what anyone would want in the first few months of taking over a theatre when those kind of stories uh, you know, come out. And yet I always, looking back now and reflecting on it, I always feel that you can use those challenges to an opportunity and to really draw a line. And we've made a lot of changes in the culture of the gate of how we can try and create a much more open, transparent, much more accessible theatre that allows people to be fearless, to uh, empower voices that may not have been heard originally, and for people to feel that it is a culture and an, an environment where they can create their best work. That, for me, was the real key. Because it's interesting, because you'd actually written something about it before the story broke, didn't you? You'd, um, is, that, is that correct? I read somewhere that you, you, you and some other theatre directors oh, have or, put out... Oh, organisate, yes. Yeah, yes. had put out a statement, and then the story broke almost within, within hours. Of, it was of within hours, happening. yeah, absolutely, without, un- unbeknownst to anyone at the time. <laughs> That, what a what a crazy start to mm. your to, to your tenure. It's worth saying for legal reasons that Colgan has admitted um, misjudgment. I think he said, mm-hmm. but said he he denies allegations of illegal wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. But they have decided there's a case against him. Mm-hmm. So obviously, I think it's still under investigation yeah. at the moment. There, there has also been a movement waking the feminists, a grassroots movement in Irish theatre, just to wake the theatre up, I suppose, to feminism in general, not not just of wrongdoing and it does seem to have had quite a lot of success in that that there are now rules about reporting gender equality in the sort of the major cultural institutions absolutely huge watershed moment there was a lot of organizations a lot of institutions came together and we only launched it only a few months ago just really just down the road here at the Lear all the organizations came together and have been working on a gender equality policy of how they were going to implement as in, in their own individual ways and how long that would take and in terms of data and gathering that data and how they were going to be programming and looking at how they were going to program in terms of commissioning new work, in terms of the ratio of actor, in terms of gender balance on stage, to just the policy of em- employing staff and their workforce. So it was a, it was a moment when we, I worked with um, the group for a year and we discussed all the different ways and it was a really extraordinary moment here in, here in Ireland that organisations from all over the country came together to work on it. It started when the cultural programme for the Abbey Theatre came out Mm. in uh, in 2016 about the Easter Rising and only one in ten plays had been written by a woman, Mm. which is just staggering. Now that's obviously not just Ireland, that's that's pretty universal. We Mm. talked to Dawn King last week who wrote Foxfinder about, you know, how many women there are writing. And she she said it's not for the want of the writers, Mm -hmm. they're there, it's just for the, the want of putting it on. I assume in your experience, that is pretty universal everywhere that you've, you've worked. I think it's pretty universal, but I think it's, it's changing, it's shifting. I think the paradigm is shifting, and I think it really does allow, just in terms of where I am at the moment, programming the gate, is you're much more aware of it, and how you can create platforms, both on the gate stage and off, where those voices can be heard. I mean, it's yeah. no coincidence that my first programme was entitled, in, in the, the title of it was The Outsider. And for me, it was looking at ways that we can empower voices that are maybe not necessarily heard on the gate stage. And within the first year, I think, from looking back from the Waking the Feminist statistics, which they did a very rigorous research around all the main organisations in Ireland 
I think we, we jumped from 8% to 80% of female directors who had worked on the gate stage Crikey. within a year. That's so that amazing. was an amazing statistic, which, you know, and again, over the course of three years, we're looking at how we can create gender equality across every single discipline. So it's showing that change can happen really quickly as well, which yeah. we're very often told that it can't. I think it can. Yeah. Can I ask on the theme of the outsider, as a, an English woman mm-hmm. working in the Irish theatre, do you think that gives you a perspective on sort of the traditional Irish canon? Well, I've been living here for on and off for 10 years, 10 to 12 years now, so I feel probably more Irish than I do yeah. English. Um, and I feel very ensconced here in terms of the, of the community and knowing probably more about Irish theatre than I, than I probably do about English theatre at the moment. I was always really interested in the, the Irish canon and Irish playwrights, in particular Samuel Beckett, which was one of the real reasons I think I... Well, I, I did. I came and studied at Trinity and I did my dissertation on Samuel Beckett and Japanese no theatre. So I've always felt a very close affinity to artistic work here. I almost felt it was a matter of time until I actually moved here for good, you know, or for as long as I'm here at the moment. May I ask you about the gate and the fact that you have to take from the international classic canon is that correct that's yeah see that must be quite exciting almost in its limitations because it means with that limitation you get to and have to use your imagination quite Mm. a lot Mm. because people have seen hamlet so many times before is it a challenge is it fun is it i think it's essential because i think whenever you do a classic you have to ask yourself why and I think, for me, it's about how you can reinvigorate these texts. They're timeless. And so I think it's all about asking whoever it is, actors, directors, creators, to come together to tell the story today that makes it feel relevant and alive and urgent. And I think at the gate, there's two paths for me. One is the international classics and the national classics. Um, and the other is new work. And when McLemore and Edwards set up the gate in 1928... They were very much looking at it as a home for international artists to work, as much as Irish artists to work. And I think the tension between the two, as an alternative national theatre, I think is really, really interesting in terms of what they were trying to create that was so pioneering back in the 20s, 30s, bringing in Strindberg, Ibsen, travelling abroad to China and India with those great classics, as well as really supporting Irish and you know new Irish playwrights as well. That, for me, is where I feel the gate really needs to be moving on to. Last night, quite a lot of action took place off the stage, and by that I mean within the audience. Now, you went one stage further than that with The Great Gatsby and removed all of the seats, and people came dressed as if they were going to The Great Gatsby's party. That's right. How did we miss that? That Well, it's coming back. It's coming back for Christmas. So, ladies, you've got to come back for that. Put on your dancing shoes. (laughs) Honestly, it sounds absolutely amazing. It had an amazing response. Amazing response. It was was a great summer. So that opened, that was the opening production of the new programme. And it's returning because it was such a it was such a great hit, and I'm, it really you know, opened the gate to new audiences. Yeah, and it allowed them to see every single nook and cranny of the Gate Theatre. So we took out all the seats, turned where you sat last night into Gatsby's ballroom, and then the stage area became the seedy whiskey bar, and then the studio space, which you didn't see last night became the boudoir and then the bar and then the hospitality room which is one of the spaces backstage at the gate so the audience were allowed to 
traverse everywhere in a very immersive experience. And there was ten, act- ten actors who played Gatsby and Daisy, and you, you could follow their narratives, and you could choose which of the narratives you wanted to follow. I was going to ask follow. whether it was promenade or immersive. It's, it's promenade and immersive. Wow. And, so, and, you know, audiences who have come to see it have come back nearly ten times to see and follow each of the journeys each of the na- each, each of the different characters' journeys. Be creative the and space. also financially canny. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's that's really where I think if you can find the sweet spot between the two of those, that you feel really proud of the work that you're producing, and at the same time really excites audiences to come back again and again that's really important because of course being an artistic director there's a huge pressure on you to provide seasons upon seasons of really inventive creative stuff that people will enjoy but also there's quite a lot of financial responsibility to keep the theatre going and to, to to safeguard for the future because obviously art funding is getting cut what's slashed certainly in the UK is it a similar story over in Ireland yeah well I think it's very challenging I think it's challenging around the world I don't think it's just it's just in the UK and in Ireland and I think as always the arts need to be supported they're so important they are they are yeah. absolutely just for the health of a nation absolutely so like mental health and learning that absolutely. you can do different things and that other people feel the same way of you and that it's okay to have emotions the arts are just so important no it's absolutely critical just to just a development of human souls and spirits yeah. and minds and i think the more courageous you are with that the more it needs support and the more risky you are with that the more it needs support and i think there's always that tension between the risk, the artistic risk versus the financial payoff. And I think when you can be fearless with that program, I think you can really shift the idea of what this live experience is in a, in a world where digital and social media seems to be monopolizing everyone's time and headspace. Whereas when you can actually create extraordinary live visceral events, it actually takes you back to the Greeks, where you sit in the dark, turn off your mobile phones, shoulder to shoulder, and you experience some theatrical alchemy. And that is where I believe, especially at the gate, in our pursuit of excellence, you have a transformative effect on people's lives. I think one of the criticisms that is levelled at theatre, and at the arts in general, and it's not one I agree with, but it certainly gets put out there a lot, is that they're elite Mm-hmm. May I ask what the gate does to sort of challenge that and to encourage sort of working class people mm-hmm. or families mm-hmm. that don't have money to come along? Mm-hmm. Well, we have discounted ticket schemes, but also we try and reach out and we are trying to build our sort of community in terms of artists, artists coming to work. We've just had new productions as our artists in residencies here over the last few months and they've been going out to the community and creating work with the community. And also we just programmed The Snapper, Roddy Doyle's The Snapper, which is very much looking at working class and the yeah. side voices and putting him on the gate stage. And it's just, it was just a beautiful story. I fell in love with Ireland through, through Roddy's work. But what was amazing about it is that it was a sold-out run for 14 weeks and 74% of our audiences had never been to the gate before. Really? Wow. That, I mean, that is the gold. It's the holy grail. Yeah, it's the holy absolutely. grail. And it just makes you realise that the appetite is out there for yeah. that kind of work. And we need to keep doing that kind of work. And we need to build those audiences. So they come and see Snapper, and they'll come back and see Hamlet, they'll come and see Gatsby. And it's to create a rhythm in the artistic programming where there is something for everyone. And we break down those, those barriers. 
Can I ask about the rest of the country? Do you do touring productions that go sort of outside of Dublin? We are planning to do touring productions next year. Oh, excellent. Absolutely. And also internationally as well. I think it's really important for the gate to reposition its brand, both nationally and internationally. And that's something that we are actually pursuing in, in 2019. Because I had a, a proper fit of FOMO last night because on our seat She was... did as well. She had a strop. Oh, there is currently a festival on of theatre mm. in in Dublin and in it was at least two things that I really wanted to see including the Misfits which looked amazing and I just thought why isn't that on in London why I mind you I suppose Dublin's not that far get on a plane people come over it's only an hour away it's only an hour away and the Dublin Theatre Fest was such an exciting time in Dublin there's so many great great artists work and companies work it's a huge programme it is less than a month it's very ambitious it's very ambitious and it's just a great way to celebrate theatre in this in the city can I ask what's coming up well, that you I, can talk about? That you it's can tell all, us about? yeah. So, so Hamlet is sold out, and that finishes in the end of October, and then we open Gatsby in November, and that runs until 2019. And I will be launching a new program, which is very exciting, probably next next month, probably well, probably middle of November for the 2019 programme which is again really interesting I can't really give exactly what is going to be in it but she it's is really <laughs> like the Cheshire <laughs> get on the mailing list <laughs> but it's a really exciting combination of, of, of great international work um, artists coming to work at the gate as well as some great great which I'm really excited by Irish artistic work as well so it's a really lovely combination of new some classics in there again something for everyone what have you enjoyed getting your teeth into so far? What's been the highlight of your tenure so far? That's a really difficult question because it's always... You are welcome. Who is it's your favourite really child? Yes, yeah, exactly. It's a difficult one. <laughs> it's always the one that is currently up, it seems to me, is that that's the one that you have gone on the journey with and it's the most closest to you. And I'm so very proud of this production of Hamlet. And looking back over the last year and for next year, I'm just... It's, I'm, I can't because each, each one of them is your babies. <laughs> Yeah, Everyone's it's difficult got a to pick a favourite. Theatre and live art forms need to be continue to be celebrated and in, and encouraged for people to come and see. Because I think in a world I, how disconnected we all are, it feels, and how important that live art event, if it's theatre, if it's music, if it's if it's live film events or whatever, is conversations. It's really important for people to engage and to appreciate the value. Of how it can add, what, what the, the value it can add into people's lives. Absolutely, Amen it's, to it's that. way too broad a spectrum for anyone to go. Oh, there's nothing in that for me, because you can find you'll find your people Absolutely. somewhere in the live art scene. Absolutely. And my dad, a man who left school at 14, absolutely obsessed by Shakespeare. You know, would never go to the theatre to see anything else, but would go anywhere, drive anywhere to see Shakespeare. Just completely loved it. I tell you what we thought was interesting last night about Shakespeare. Having never seen Shakespeare performed in an Irish accent before, mm-hmm. there's something about the patterns of Irish speech that actually it made more. It kind of made more sense to me. But a lot of the things that they say, I mean, I had Irish grandparents, and sometimes they reordered their sentences so the words weren't always in the, the same order. And it, it really worked for me. I thought yeah, it flowed um, way more like ordinary conversation than some stilted way that Shakespeare can be delivered. I completely agree, and I think the range of Irish dialects really suit the rhythms and the metre and the verse yeah. of Shakespeare. I mean, I've been fortunate enough to work in Ireland with some great actors, um, great artists who have on Titus Andronicus and King Lear and the Scottish play 
and it really allows you, I think, to go much deeper into the language when you have different dialects from all over an island working on the working on his text. Yeah. So I'm a great believer in that as well. Yeah, I saw Othello Macbeth, which is a mashup of exactly those two plays the other week, and they were both great. But it was it had that tuning in period that I get whenever I go and see Shakespeare. There was no, last night. I was like, oh, I've got it straight away. A lot of people have said that too. Yeah. A lot yeah. of people who've seen the production have said exactly the same. Can't say enough good stuff about what fun we had last night. Accidentally touched the people. <laughs> Accidentally. She was like six foot away from us when she did Hannah, to be or not to when, be. I was just working out. If I stood up and suddenly fell over, would I have been... Like, I could probably hit her. Could I? <laughs> yeah. yeah, Hannah, but please don't do that. I know. We didn't know want to know what appropriate action was. <laughs> exactly. Thank you so much for your time, Selena. pleasure. Hello, Mickey here, interrupting again, but to tell you how you can find out more about us. And that is if you want to follow us on Twitter. Standard Issue is at Standard Issue UK. I'm at Mixed Noonan. Hannah is at That Dunleavy. And Jen is at Inspire Jen. And you can find out more about our views, opinions and general nonsense if you follow us over there. Look forward to having a natter. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Joined on the phone by sports writer and author of Roar of the Lionesses, Carrie Dunn. Hi, Carrie. Hello. You are a women's football expert. We like to talk to experts on the Standard Issue podcast (laughs) because it takes the pressure off me a bit. (laughs) So it's the Women's Champions League this week. It is. Yeah, the round of 16. And uh, we still have um, Chelsea left in from England who play Fiorentina uh, in the first leg on Wednesday in at Kingstonian. And then also Glasgow City, who have a very tough tie uh, against Barcelona. So who who else is left in the competition that sort of, you know, looks like a, a major threat to them should they progress? Well, obviously, um, Leon will be the um, biggest favourites. Um, they're the holders of the trophy already, and they've already won it uh, five times. They've won it more times than anybody else who's ever competed in the competition. So they'll be the biggest threat for anybody going forward. They're playing Ajax in the next round, but uh, Leon also have um, plenty of players that will be very familiar to anyone who's watched women's football in England or who will watch the Lionesses in any of their international matches. They've got AZ Christensen, they've got Lucy Bronze, got Jess Fishlock, the Wales player who's on loan. So yes, plenty of familiar faces in the Leon squad as well. It's quite interesting that in men's football, we don't see that many English players out and about in Mm. foreign teams. Why is that the case in women's football in the UK? Well, women's football has always kind of had this... I guess they've always encouraged players to go abroad, particularly from England. So up until kind of the last five years, the only chance to kind of play football at a decent level and kind of get some kind of uh, financial reward for it was to go to America and play college football. So the best players would go abroad at the age of 18. Mm -hmm. Uh, They would play college football for four years. Um, Obviously, being a student athlete in America is, is a really big deal. They play at a really high level and they're kind 
come back. And the problem is, obviously, five years ago in England, there wasn't, well, six years, seven years now, there wasn't a great standard of professional women's football in England. It only happened in 2011 when the Women's Super League started up. So going abroad for English players was probably the best bet. Going back even further, I mean, there were there were semi-professional leagues in Scandinavia, Italy in the 60s and 70s, so even before the FA started to do something with women's football in this country. So going abroad has always been something that's quite attractive for female players in England. And that's not to say that in terms of kind of speaking the language or anything like that, they're any better prepared than their male counterparts. You know, I know that um, Lucy Bronze has been kind of trying to learn French uh, for the past year or so, and she tweets occasionally in French, which is quite funny. Mm. But it's kind of in- immersing yourself in the culture. I mean, I've spoken to really young players who have been offered the chance to go and play in you know, Germany. They don't speak the language, but they just think the opportunity to train and play with you know, fantastic players uh, like the German national team is too much to turn down. And there's a f- great player from London Bees, Ashley Goddard, uh, who decided that at the start of this season, she wanted to play full-time football. She couldn't quite get a WSL contract, so she's gone to Denmark to play for four months. And she's not even uh, earning that much money from it. She's getting her expenses covered, and she's like uh, living in, in a hotel by the stadium. But the chance to play full-time happens uh, more often overseas. So that's just simply something that uh, female footballers from England choose to do. What is the professional landscape in England at the moment? Yeah, it's it's a complicated one. So um, the Women's Super League started up um, a few years back and then it was a closed league. So there were a, a small number of teams and there wasn't promotional relegation. And the idea was that the top talent, so you know, basically the England players, was shared out between those clubs to make sure it was competitive league so you couldn't kind of buy success, essentially. And in the past six years, that's expanded. So they introduced a second division of that. And the uh, salary cap and the squad cap uh, was lifted. So now you've got something that looks a little bit more like what we're used to seeing in men's football. And as from this season, the top division, the Women's Super League, um, all the squads are full-time professional. And the Women's Championship, so the second division, well, the championship equivalent for the men, uh, is supposed to be um, part-time. Now, that, there's a little leeway with that. Um, as you probably know, Manchester United's uh, newly formed women's team are in the championship and they are basically full-time pros, so they've got a, a full-time team. So, yeah, we've got basically um, just over a dozen full-time professional teams and with a view to perhaps expanding that in the future. So, yeah, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a huge number of female professional footballers. But I mean, I remember a few years ago, it was only Chelsea. Chelsea were the only team that were fully professional. And that is that is within the last five years. So that's yeah. pretty big yeah. progress. I mean, it is. But then I guess it depends how you're defining professional. Mm. Um, we're not talking you know, men's salaries here. No. We're talking women who are basically earning probably the average national wage and uh, certainly in some cases lower. Um, which is obviously, you know, it, it, it's great to have your expenses covered and a little bit more if you're playing in the championship and you're a university student and, you know, you're, you're balancing your studies with that. If you're looking to pay a mortgage, uh, raise a family, save up for a wedding 
uh, yeah, basically live a, a normal life on a footballer's salary with all the kind of uncertainties that come with being a professional footballer. It's it's slightly more difficult. So one of the teams that is doing, I think, quite impressive things in women's football at the moment in that they've had, you know, some really big signings, names on a sort of international level that, that people will recognise, like Carly Lloyd, for example. And I just think in general they're doing they're doing quite exciting things in women's football is Manchester City. They went out of the Champions League in the last round, didn't they? Was that a surprise? Manchester City have had an odd start to the season and they did have a really tough draw in the round of 32, so they were knocked out by Atletico Madrid. City have had a really successful couple of years, so they came into the Women's Super League a couple of years back, straight into the top division. There was lots of investment behind them. They uh, signed players like Steph Horton and Jill Scott, and as you mentioned, they've been able to attract top international talent because they work very closely with the men's side of the club. So um, when I was researching the role of the Lionesses, I, I was fortunate enough to be allowed to have a bit of a nose around the facilities. So let me kind of wander around the gym and stuff. And you do see the men's squad training alongside the, the women's team, and I think that's really helped them. But again, I mean, even last season, season before, when they were being very successful, in terms of squad numbers, in terms of kind of the strength and depth, they still suffer a little bit. Um, they weren't, didn't necessarily have a full substitutes bench, for example. They were bringing kind of through youth players. And I think that is a problem with women's football in England that perhaps we haven't quite addressed. The fact that the talent pathway hasn't been very long established, the fact that we have got these professional teams and we haven't quite got the strength and depth that we'd be used to seeing. And with 11 players and you want at least five subs or you know, seven subs or whatever. And the numbers just aren't quite there yet for the, for the top level, I don't think. So what needs to be done to improve that, that talent pathway? Oh, well, I think it's happening. Um, it's just because it's not been long enough established and the networks keep changing. So as, as I mentioned, when the Super League started up, it was a small closed league and it's, it's expanded so massively over the past kind of five, six, seven years. And of course... The next generation hasn't quite progressed yet. So perhaps ask me again in 10 years' time and see how things are actually, have actually gone. But it's difficult to assess what's happening long-term when things are changing so quickly all the time. What did you make of the announcement the other week about the Olympics, that the home nations are going to be playing? It's a complicated one with the Olympics as well because... Um, for women's football, it's also used as, um, as as a qualification process in the World Cup. In this case, for, for Tokyo, um, it will be England who are the lead team and it will be England who uh, get the benefits from it. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a good thing. Um, the Olympic football is a much bigger deal in women's football than it is in men's football. So it's good to see um, the players be able to compete there. I know that in 2012, when the combined GB team was allowed to compete, uh, it, it meant a, a great deal to the players. But, you know, I would, I'd like to see a proper GB team. I don't want to see basically England plus a couple of others. You know, I see England a lot. And I, I would love to see um, more Scotland players, more, more Irish players, more, more Welsh players in there. Um, we didn't really get that last time, so fingers crossed that this will be a, a truly unified team competing. Carrie, you are, as discussed, a women's football expert and you've written books about the subject. Where can we find those books? Are they available in all good bookshops? Yep, all good bookshops or direct from the publishers uh, Pitch Publishing or you can drop me a line on Twitter at Carrie Sparkle. Thank you very much for joining us, Carrie, and I hope you enjoy the football. Thank you. 
Hello, Mickey here. And Hannah. Interrupting. We're here to tell you what's coming up this weekend on the Sunday Chops. I went off to learn how to wrestle. I know, brace yourselves, that's a natural position. Learn more about that on Sunday. And I chatted to some women wrestlers who are professionals and also a brilliant woman who runs pro wrestling in London. So I'll be chatting about that. And in the latest in our series, Celebrating Black History Month, I talked to writer Claire Hukin about her new book for children, What is Race? Who are Racists? Why does skin colour matter? And other big questions. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disney. Dunleavy, what Disney did you do this week? This week I did Atlantis, colon, The Lost Empire. There's sadness in your eyes. I know. Do you know, when I first started doing this, whenever that was... Free Hannah Dunleavy. It was like 1968 or something. (laughs) When I first started doing this and I was just looking down the list, there was a point at which things started to become unfamiliar to me and then there was a point they became a bit familiar again and there were some things that I'd heard people discussing and there was a couple that made me go what the fuck is that and Atlantis colon the lost empire was one of them how important is the colon I was just about to ask (laughs) does it hold the shit in I don't know does it hold the shit in okay this film is 2001 but it Fails way older than that. It's Disney's 41st film, if you're interested, and it's only, or first and only, crack at sci-fi. Really? Hang on. The Treasure of Planet one is kind of sci-fi-y. Uh, Steampunky. Yeah. Shit. <laughs> sort of. What about Wally? Well, okay, let's say it's his first crack at sci-fi then. Okay. It's a crack. It's a crack <laughs> It's better if you're sci-fi. on crack. It stars Michael J. Fox, Cree Summer, James Garner, Leonard Nimoy. Early on, it had Josh Whedon on board as a writer. It was rewritten considerably. Um, Josh Whedon now says there was there's nothing left of what he wrote in this. I don't know if that's true or whether he's just trying to dissociate himself <laughs> from it. There was a spin-off series planned for TV, which was cancelled when the audience kind of went, eh. Uh, according to Wikipedia, it's now considered a cult classic, but that actually has by who written in brackets at <laughs> the side of it. So Citation I don't know how needed. seriously that can be taken. I'm guessing neither of you got the chance to watch this because I forgot to tell you that's what I was doing. That is correct. Okay. I, I was I was washing my hair. Did you like it? Um, do you know what? Actually, in bits I did. Oh? In bits, it's actually quite an enjoyable film. But I think it's quite problematic. When it started, I thought, oh, God, I've got the wrong film. This isn't a Disney film. It starts with pretty Saturday morning television-looking animation. Cheap. Um, animation (laughs) and this tsunami is about to hit this city a woman seems to get taken up into the sky and I thought fuck this isn't the right film I've started watching something else because I would imagine there's lots of crap made about Atlantis checked it was the right film that I was watching but I think it's kind of an indication of how weird this film is so it starts with this and then it cuts to what is the present in the film but obviously 
isn't the present is actually 1914, which is when this film set. A character called Milo, who is played by Michael J. Fox, who's giving a lecture about this mysterious power source, which obviously he believes is to do with Atlantis. He's doing it in the boiler room because that's how seriously he is taken as a scientist, because obviously this is crackpot, this idea that Atlantis exists. In fact, his boss says to him that they're a university and they deal with facts, not legends, and I think he should probably go and work at Goldsmith and get a hold (laughs) of what's happening there now. The animation is kind of, like, like I say, kind of cheap-looking. People have hair that looks like linguine, you know, (laughs) rather than individual separate bits of spaghetti you'd hope for more than linguine, obviously. I think the problem with this film is... Are you hungry, Hannah? It doesn't... It doesn't know what it is, really. And it's like they had a go at something and it didn't work, so they basically ignored it. Is it like Dr Erka? He doesn't know what his niche in the market is. Yeah, possibly. Is it frozen pizza? Is it silver balls you put on cupcakes? (laughs) I don't know. Let's give them all a go. Yeah, could be yogurt. Exactly, Throw that exactly. Into the mix, Jen. He does not know what his niche in the market is. Yeah, that's that's a good analogy because, like, this is in no way a traditional Disney film in that it, it's a film exclusively about grown-ups. There are no children in it, which is usually that I mean that's how you get a child involved in a film is that you give them someone they can relate to. Kind of makes me think it's not aimed at children, really. Certainly not small children. It's got no music at all. Not even, a, not even a Phil Collins montage. No Phil Collins montage. What? But obviously, it's not an adult's film. So it does not beg the question, who the fuck is this film actually aimed at? Anyway, so basically he gets called in, this 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 Michael J. Fox character. And what I do have to say is, I do like the fact that, you know, Michael J. Fox, great actor, but unfortunately for him, you know, actually limited in what work he can actually do. So I will say he's brilliant in this. Round of applause. You know, people give Michael J. Fox more animation work. He gets called in to this guy who who tells him that his grandfather has left this book with him, basically. This this guy, by the way, is is like a recycled animation of that funny little goblin-y old man from Aladdin. Oh, right. I thought you were going to say from Monty Python. No, from, from Aladdin, but except that he dresses like Colonel Sanders in it. He puts together this crew that includes the captain, who's played by James Garner, a femme fatale called Helga St. Clair, who's a bit of a hottie. <laughs> a great name. Who's a, yeah, who's a bit of a hottie. They all go off on um, on this sort of underwater expedition to find the city of Atlantis. Wasn't she in the lower low, actually? Helga St. Clair. She's kind of, she is kind of like that. And there are bits in it that genuinely quite make me laugh. But, because there's a funny bit where, you know, they're loading it up like you would a, a, like a ship as an expedition and they ask what they've got on board and they say, I've got beans, bacon, whiskey and lard, <laughs> which is actually quite funny. You know, that sounds great. That's, uh, that's a good enough holiday for me. But, but they don't, they can't obviously work on the adult jokes that would work in things like this because it's not adults, it's Disney, it's for children, you know. Is why why are they why they're making this? There's some other bits that are really funny. I mean, it's got a really high death count. When they meet this thing called the Leviathan, is I think it's about two hundred. And there's actually a really funny bit where the James Garner character says, "Right, any all right, anyone who's not dead, come <laughs> over here," which is actually really funny. They go to this Indiana Jones style under like sort of caverns and caves, and I mean the crew is is more eccentric than the 
crew in the Life Aquatic, which is quite something. And they've got a really brilliant sort of radio operator type character who is she's a little bit like the woman from Monsters Inc. That, Rose. Yes. Oh, hello. <laughs> she's got a touch of that about her, and there's a bit where they're being attacked by a Leviathan, and she's talking through one of her friends love life on the phone so like I say there are bits that feel like if they they should have just said fuck it let's try and make a film for adults and Disney can do it because there are bits of this film that are quite enjoyable but so like beans bacon lard whiskey condoms yeah it's very odd because this film's set in 1914 right and at no point or not until right up to the end does anybody bother to mention that you know, there's going to be a war on pretty soon, which is a, is a very strange thing. Eventually they get to Atlantis and they meet the king. He's played by Leonard Nimoy and his daughter. You know, there's some saucy times between the daughter and the Michael J. Fox character. Clog apart those condoms. Because, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, talk about Cougar. She is like 800 years old and he is in his 20s. Or as my friend Laura pronounces it, Cougar. <laughs> There's a really weird, there's this really weird plot about how basically they've all forgotten to read in 800 years. Like, they've lost the ability to read, which I don't really understand. And then then there's, like, some sort of battle thing, you know. Everything turns out all right in the end. And it does have this touch of white saviour about it, because even though the people of Atlantis are also actually white, it's that same idea of, hey, this guy's turned up and saved us, this guy from nowhere. It's a bit of backstabbing. It's, it's odd. It's just a really odd film. I have no jokes. I don't... You, you probably need to watch it. And yet I can't think of anybody that would or indeed should. I've heard from a good source it's a cult classic. Kind of. Yeah. Citation needed. So there you have it. It's got beans, bacon, whiskey and lard. Um, that's not All a bad stuff example of what this actually is yeah i don't know what else to great say great individual parts but what are you making with them together quite yeah sort of mishmash what score are you giving it i was kind of torn about this because like i said there were bits in it that i thought oh this is all right and there were other bits that i just thought what the fuck it wasn't sadness in your eyes it was confusion it was confusion i'm gonna say i'm gonna say i'm gonna give it two and a half Oh, it's lower than I thought you were going to go. I thought you were going to go three. Yeah. Two and a half what? Two and a half beans, bacon, and, well, I don't suppose we get to the whiskey. Um, that would be <laughs> sounds, a shame. Yeah, really. it sounds like you need to start with the whiskey. To be honest. Two and a half confused faces, I think, is what we'll go with. Okay. The great news is, I think, I think, we might be down to single figures now on what we need to watch left. If you want a little list, what we haven't seen is... Fantasia, oh. The Sword in the Stone. You know, I oh saw God. half of it. Who knows? Hercules. I've seen half of that. Who knows? Lilo and Stitch. Mm. Supposed to be quite good. Finding Nemo. Hooray! Mm. Brother Bear, which is about Native Americans, so that puts my teeth on edge. Uh, is it Pocahontas Mark too? Yeah, I hope not. Wind Machines. Um, Cars. Wreck It Ralph. Big Hero Six. Inside Out. What? The Good Dinosaur, which Jen and I have already watched, mm. and Zootopia. Sorry, we've got eleven. I was going to say that's more than 10. that is eleven. Um, so nearly there. And then after Christmas, we will do something else. You OMG. can't see it, listeners, but Hannah's pulled a t-shirt over her head and is doing a victory <laughs> dance. <laughs> yeah. People feel free to suggest 
what I watch, but I will just do what I want anyway. But, you know, just... Okay, cool. Welcome to our world, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Standard Issue for All Women.